Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. We're expecting a House vote on formalizing President Biden's impeachment inquiry. What are the chances of it passing? The president's son is defending his father. The deadline is today for his closed-door deposition with GOP lawmakers. What did he say about his own indictment and the impeachment inquiry? What do Biden administration officials have to say about the Iranian regime's funding of terrorism? We'll bring you a House hearing on the topic. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. The president's son is in the Capitol today ahead of a closed-door deposition led by the House Oversight and Judiciary Committees. Hunter Biden admitted that he is responsible for his mistakes but defended his father. I'm here today to acknowledge that I've made mistakes in my life and wasted opportunities and privileges I was afforded. For that, I'm responsible. For that, I'm accountable. And for that, I'm making amends. My father was not financially involved in my business, not as a practicing lawyer, not as a board member of Burisma, not in my partnership with a Chinese private businessman, not in my investments at home nor abroad, and certainly not as an artist. House Republicans have subpoenaed Hunter Biden as part of an investigation into whether President Biden committed an impeachable offense in his family's dealings. Hunter Biden says he's willing to testify publicly in the investigation into his father, but has declined to say whether he will attend the closed-door deposition. GOP leaders previously said they would hold Hunter in contempt of Congress if he ignores their subpoena. Hunter Biden's lawyers wanted any testimony to be public over concerns that comments might be taken out of context. Republicans say filming the deposition and releasing the transcript would prevent that. Today, members of the House will be voting on whether to formalize an impeachment inquiry, as we just mentioned, into President Biden. The Republican leadership believes they will have enough votes. The vote will take place sometime after 5 p.m. Eastern Time. With a slim majority in the House, Republicans can only afford to lose three votes. So far, only Congressman Ken Buck of Colorado has said he's against formalizing the impeachment inquiry. House Speaker Mike Johnson says the White House has been stonewalling their investigation into the Biden family. And that's why he says House Republicans need a formal impeachment inquiry to better enforce their subpoenas in court. Joining us now to discuss the impeachment inquiry vote is Republican strategist and former Trump advisory board member Jason Meister. Jason, Republicans are already investigating the president, but why are they holding this vote? Yeah, look, we now have more than sufficient evidence to impeach Joe Biden, let alone open up an impeachment inquiry, which I believe should have happened at least eight to 10 months ago. I mean, if you think about it, we now have bank records, uh, we have um, bank records, we have phone calls, we have Hunter Biden's laptop, emails, photos, text messages. We have Joe Biden using multiple aliases and pseudonyms. We have White House visitor logs. We have Air Force Two travel logs. And we even have Joe Biden on video literally admitting to a $1 billion bribe to fire the Ukrainian prosecutor that was looking into his son, Hunter Biden. I mean, why is it that in 2014, 
Hunter Biden was getting paid a $1 million salary from Burisma Holdings. And then in 2017, when Joe Biden is no longer vice president, that salary was cut in half. Why? Why is it that the Biden Klein family and their associates took in $24 million from China, Russia, Ukraine, and Kazakhstan, and then they set up 20-plus shell companies to hide all of that money? Why? That's, we have to get to the bottom of these questions. Jason, what do we know about the potential outcome of any impeachment inquiry vote here? I think you're going to see the impeachment inquiry move forward very quickly and swiftly. Um, unlike in the previous uh, impeachments of uh, Donald Trump, the previous two impeachments, where, uh, where Donald Trump was actually impeached for investigating and looking into the corruption of the Biden crime family, this is an impeachment worth having. And I think that the House is going to put a very public trial on showing all of the evidence that they've gathered over the last several months so that the American people can understand that the president of the United States of America is compromised. He converted his crackhead son into a bad man to collect and split the millions of dollars of graft that they took from all around the world from corrupt countries. And the American people are going to see that. Now, let's talk about Mike Johnson. It's him and not Kevin McCarthy, um, who's the Speaker of the House right now. How does that factor into all of this? Yeah, so I, I can personally tell you I had a, a, a lunch uh, over here in Manhattan about a week ago Sunday uh, with Speaker Johnson. And I think he's, he's up to the task. I think he's going to put the armor of God on and he's going to go in and he's going to do what the American people want him to do. And it, like I said earlier, it should have happened eight to ten months ago. But I now think you have a speaker, thanks to uh, Matt Gates, who's willing to do the people's work. And that's what needs to happen because we, again, have a president that is completely compromised sitting at the White House. And you, you touched on this a little bit before, but can you compare and contrast a bit more um, the Democrats' impeachment inquiry of, of Donald Trump, former, former President Donald Trump, and uh, the Republicans' impeachment inquiry of President Biden? Sure. You had a perfect phone call between President Zelensky and President Trump back in 2019 when the Democrats weaponized the impeachment process, okay, and basically impeached Donald Trump for everything that Joe Biden has done. And now you're going to see all of the evidence, like I said, the bank records, the White House uh, uh, visitor logs, the Air Force Two travel logs, all of the bank records and shell companies that the hunt that the Joe Biden family created to obfuscate and hide all the money that they were taking from these corrupt regimes all around the world. So you're going to have a real impeachment trial with real evidence, with real bank records showing that the president of the United States is completely compromised and must be not only impeached, but prosecuted for treason, extortion and bribery. And that's going to happen as we as we unfold this impeachment inquiry. All right, Jason Meister, Republican strategist and former Trump advisory board member. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. about to start our coverage of a House Financial Services Committee hearing on how the Iranian regime gets and uses money to fund terrorism. 
It's the second of a series of hearings on the topic. Today's hearing will focus on getting answers from Biden administration officials. Let's watch. The Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations will come to order, and without objection, the Chair is authorized to declare a recess of the committee at any time. Um, I, uh, I do want to take a moment, a uh, point of personal privilege, and, and then offer that up to my uh, colleague, Mr. Green, as well. But I want to acknowledge um, somebody who has been an integral part of our team here at the Oversight Subcommittee, and it's Rachel Caldall. Um, Rachel is our Chief Oversight Counsel. Uh, for the past 16 months. Uh, she previously had been with the Ways and Means Committee. Um, she's going to some other place a little north of us. I hear it's on a campus, um, I, I, some other building over there where they might do some important stuff too, called the Senate. Um, and uh, she is gonna be going over to the Senate Banking uh, Committee. And we, uh, we deeply appreciate your service, Rachel. Uh, you've been a pleasure to work with. You've been an amazing professional uh, and how you have, uh, have worked through some tough issues. And uh, we just wanna say thank you on behalf of myself personally, uh, Sean, my team, and the entire committee. Uh, we just wanna say thank you for your service. Uh, and uh, we know you're not going far. Uh, and uh, well, I'm sure our paths will be crossing again. So blessings and all the best uh, to, to your future. And with that, I'm happy to acknowledge my colleague as well. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, this is one of those moments of uh, bipartisanship. Uh, I'm honored to acknowledge the outstanding work and uh, would wish her well as, as well. So thank you, Rachel, for your service. And as a former staffer, uh, I know you're only as good as the people you surround yourself with, uh, and uh, and she's been uh, she's been excellent. So, uh, thank you again. Um, with that, this hearing is entitled "Moving the Money Part Two: Getting Answers from the Biden Administration on the Iranian Regime's Support of Terrorism." And without objection, all members will have five legislative days within which to submit extraneous materials to the chair for inclusion in the record. Uh, I now recognize myself for five minutes to give an opening statement. So Assistant Secretary Rosenberg, Deputy uh, Special Envoy Paley, thank you for appearing before our subcommittee this morning. Uh, your testimony is significant uh, to this subcommittee and continues to investigate uh, how the Iranian regime accesses money around the world due to relaxed sanction enforcement and waivers. So additionally, we hope that you can shed light on why a new waiver was necessary for the Iraqi electricity uh, sales and how the Biden administration monitors compliance of sanctions uh, around the world. And as I said during our last hearing, I don't believe this topic should be partisan. However, I do believe in accountability. It is vital that our oversight work is informed with the collaboration and testimony directly from agencies in an open and transparent setting, not behind closed doors. So again, thank you for your willingness to be here today. Uh, as we documented in our previous hearing, Iran continues to be a leading state sponsor of terrorism, facilitating wide range of attacks and other illicit activities around the globe, and we are seeing these reports daily of, uh, regarding our own troops in the, uh, in the region. October's attack on our ally Israel is a stark reminder that in order to prevent further atrocities, we must increase, not relax, pressure on the Iranian regime. Iran, uh, Iran, sanctions, uh, sanctions, Iran sanctions have been a significant component of U.S. policy since Iran's 1979 Islamic Revolution, and history tells us that they work. 
For example, the previous administration's maximum pressure campaign cut oil exports from Iran, significantly reducing Tehran's ability to fund attacks during American, uh, against Americans and our allies. In contrast, the current administration has adopted a different strategy. This past September, as part of a deal with the Iranian regime to get American hostages, President Biden waived U.S. sanctions to allow for the transfer of $6 billion of Iranian funds from accounts in South Korea to Qatar. While the funds were not only used for, or while the funds were only to be used for humanitarian purposes, such as food and medicine, uh, there are reports uh, that the Iranian regime has found and exploited ways around those restrictions. Uh, regardless of what the restrictions are placed on these transferred funds, Iranian officials themselves have signaled that this money is fungible, which is confirmed by the Iranian's president, uh, Ibrahim uh, Raisi, who stated, quote, this money belongs to the Iranian people, the Iranian government, so the Islamic Republic of Iran will decide what to do with this money, close quote. Believing that the money will go to benefit Iranian citizens may be a bit naive. Uh, the White House and my colleagues on the other side of the aisle may attempt to dismiss the significance of these waivers, assuring us that Iran will not gain access to these transferred funds. Uh, the reality is they likely will at some point if they haven't already. My colleagues will use this opportunity uh, to point fingers at the past administration instead of acknowledging that under this president, Iran has gained ground and grown in their influence. Uh, I will note that uh, the Obama administration, the Trump administration, all, all had been operating under, uh, under this, but we saw a, a decrease uh, in those sales, and that's what this whole program was about, to wean places like Korea off of Iranian oil. Uh, the American people expect their representatives in Washington to stand up to those who w wish us harm. Uh, as we speak, Iranian proxies continue to attack American troops and our allies with little, if any, accountability or responsibility from this administration, in my opinion. So as chair of this subcommittee, I intend to use Congress's oversight and authority to hold our government and the Biden administration accountable. The status quo is not acceptable. American lives have been lost. There's been 66, 66 troops and contractors that have been killed uh, in recent days. And I look forward to so I look forward to having an open and honest dialogue this morning. And with that, I'm going to yield back the balance of my time. Thank you. And uh, the chair now recognizes the ranking member of the subcommittee on oversight, the gentleman from Texas, Mr. Green, for uh, his requested four minutes for an opening statement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate greatly your desire for accountability. I respect greatly your desire to uh, investigate fungibility. Um, I do believe that President Biden is an honorable man. I believe that President Biden has followed the law. I believe that what he has done for humanitarian purposes uh, is something that other presidents have done in a similar way. I believe that the $6 billion have not gone to, and I think we'll get evidence of that, to Iran. The money would never go to Iran it would be utilized to make purchases for humanitarian purposes that could benefit people in Iran. Um, I think that um, this quest for accountability is something that we should pursue. I don't think we should stop with just the second hearing, however. I think we need a third hearing. 
I think we need a third hearing because we need to take a look at the money that has gone to Hamas. The uh, CNN news story. In 2018, Qatar, now Qatar is the same country that would aid and assist with the humanitarian support to the people in Iran. In 2018, Qatar uh, began making monthly payments to, Gaza, to the Gaza Strip. Some 15 million was sent into Gaza in cash-filled suitcases. Cash-filled suitcases. Now this cash money going into the Gaza Strip into the hands of Hamas. Um, this was delivered by the Qataris through Israeli territory after months of negotiation with Israel. Now, what is interesting about this is, in doing this, $15 million, and by the way, when I say dollars, I'm, I literally mean dollars, U.S. dollars, not Canadian dollars. In doing this, um, the U.S. was aware of the Qatari payments, and this was on President Trump's watch to Hamas, this is per a former senior State Department official. And also, this allowed President, pardon me, Prime Minister Netanyahu to um, avoid the pressure of peace talks because he could indirectly keep Hamas in power. And in so doing, he would have the perfect enemy, the perfect scapegoat scapegoat, somebody that does not want Israel to exist. And as a result of not wanting Israel to exist, he could always say, I don't have a partner to negotiate with. Uh, but while he's saying this, he is allowing millions in cash. We don't have to talk about fungibility. Millions in cash to go directly to Hamas. I think that we ought to investigate Mr. Trump's actions or the administration's action. Uh, I don't think we can limit these things to the lawful actions of President Biden. This is more than probable cause to investigate. I would hope, Mr. Chairman, that we would treat the Trump administration with similar, uh, a similar desire to have accountability and find out what happened to that cash, suitcases of cash. I yield back. Uh, gentleman yields back, and uh, the, uh, I will note that I believe uh, Ms. Rosenberg, and I'm not sure about Mr. Paley, but uh, our career uh, employees, correct? No, I had it reversed. Okay, Mr. Paley is, so you, you may have that ability to ask them that. Um, the chair now recognizes the ranking member of the full committee, Ms. Waters, for a minute uh, for an opening statement. Thank you very much, um, Mr. Green. Under the Biden administration, the United States has maintained the most extensive set of comprehensive sanctions on Iran. In fact, the Biden administration has ramped up pressure significantly since the Trump administration by designing sanctions for hundreds of additional entities for activity related to Iran. 
including illicit sale of Iranian oil. Further, President Biden successfully negotiated a temporary ceasefire and the return of hostages taken by Hamas. This is the kind of steady leadership that America needs in an increasingly unsteady world. While I'm interested in working across the aisle with the administration to ratchet up pressure against Iran in any way possible, the accusations that the Biden administration has somehow weakened sanctions against Iran are simply false and are not conducive to productive conversation on these issues. I hope we can clear up much of that misinformation. And I thank you, and I yield back. Thank you for staying with us. We're tuning in to a House Financial Services Committee hearing on how the Iranian regime gets and uses money to fund terrorism. It's the second of a series of hearings on the topic. Today's hearing will focus on getting answers from Biden administration officials. Let's dive in. General lady's time has expired. Uh, so today we welcome the testimony of Elizabeth Rosenberg. Assistant Secretary Rosenberg is the Assistant Secretary for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes. Uh, Mr. Abraham Paley is the Deputy Special Envoy uh, to Iran, and uh, we want to thank you for taking the time to be here in person today, and without objection, your written statements will be made as part of our permanent record. So Assistant Secretary uh, Rosenberg, you are now recognized for five minutes for your oral remarks. Thank you, Chairman Hazenka, <clears throat> Ranking Member Green, and distinguished members of the committee. I appreciate the opportunity to speak on what the U.S. Department of the Treasury is doing to combat terrorist financing. October 7th was a day of horror. The brutality of the terrorist attacks carried out by Hamas against Israel, killing indiscriminately, sparing neither children nor the elderly, was an affront to our shared humanity and a somber reminder of the threat posed by terrorist organizations like Hamas. It is my responsibility as the Assistant Secretary for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes to identify and disrupt terrorist financing in the United States and abroad. Since the attacks, Treasury has redoubled its effort to identify and freeze the finances of Hamas and other Iran-backed terrorist groups. Hamas has traditionally been able to raise funds for its terrorist activities from an array of sources, including taxation, donations, a portfolio of investments across Africa and the Middle East, and direct support from Iran. The U.S. Treasury Department has historically used the full scope of its authorities to impede Hamas's funding. Sanctions designations of the group's leaders and investments span over two decades. Recognizing the dangerous role that Iran plays in destabilizing the region more broadly, Treasury has sanctioned nearly 1,000 individuals and entities connected to the Iranian regime and its proxies to date. Since the October attacks, Treasury has released three separate sanctions tranches focused on Hamas, designating over 50 additional individuals and entities linked to Hamas in Iran across multiple jurisdictions. And today, just this morning, Treasury has announced another tranche of sanctions on Hamas entities in connection with international partners. However, Hamas leaders live and move freely in Turkey, Qatar, and elsewhere, publicly solicit funds, and enjoy financial services. Therefore, in addition to sanctions designations, disrupting Hamas's international financial networks requires international action. 
In the wake of the Hamas attacks, Treasury reached out to counterparts across the Middle East and Europe to convey the administration's support for Israel and the intent to use all the tools at our disposal to expose and disrupt Hamas, including the terrorist financing targeting center, which we promptly convened among a number of Gulf partners in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia in October. Additionally, Treasury Undersecretary Nelson recently traveled to Turkey to discuss the urgent need for Turkish efforts to freeze Hamas funds. Deputy Secretary Adeyemo also spoke with his European counterparts in late October to press partners to investigate entities with possible ties to Hamas. Treasury has also had substantive technical outreach to our partners around the world, which has led to complementary sanctions actions by Australia, the European Union, Japan, the United Kingdom, and others to designate Hamas-related targets through their own domestic authorities. Treasury has also engaged the private sector, both in the United States and abroad, to refine the red flags and indicators of terrorist financing and underscore the imperative to report and freeze terrorist funds. Alongside these counter-illicit finance activities, Treasury has a significant role to play in addressing the ongoing humanitarian crisis in Gaza to ensure that our financial measures do not negatively impact legitimate aid going to the people of Gaza. Treasury has had close engagement with representatives of non-governmental organizations, international organizations, and US government implementers of humanitarian assistance on these matters. In sum, Treasury's response to Hamas and its funders over decades has been broad and aggressive. As this committee fully appreciates, Hamas's attacks and their relationship with Iran pose a threat to the safety and stability not only of Israel, but to the region more broadly and to American interests. All of us here share a common interest, preventing acts of terror. Secretary Yellen and Deputy Secretary Adeyemo have previously spoken about how to confront these challenges by maintaining US leadership abroad, meeting all our financial commitments, and adapting our laws to meet the challenges posed by new and emerging financial technologies. I look forward to working with the members of this committee on these issues, and I'd be happy to answer your questions. Thank you. Thank you, and uh, with that, we will turn to Mr. Uh, Paley. Uh, you are now recognized for five minutes. Thank you. Uh, Chairman Heisinger, Ranking Member Green, members of the committee, Thank you for inviting us here today. We welcome this opportunity to discuss Iran, one of the most persistent threats we face as a country. The Biden administration views Iran as an adversary and the leading state sponsor of terrorism. We are clear-eyed about Iran and will continue to take the actions necessary to counter the threats it poses, and our approach is framed within this context. Across the federal government, we are confronting Iran and pushing back against its destabilizing activities. We are coordinating closely with allies and partners to enhance our already strong military deterrent. We are implementing biting sanctions and economic pressure. And we are utilizing strategic messaging to make clear Iran's behavior will not be tolerated, will be punished, and that Tehran will continue to be treated as a pariah on the international stage absent a shift in its policies. This resolve in countering Iran has been on full display since the horrific Hamas terrorist attacks on Israel on October 7th, the subsequent attacks by Iranian-backed proxies on US personnel and facilities in the region, and the Iran-enabled Houthi attacks on Israel and on commercial shipping in the Red Sea. We view Iran as complicit in Hamas's barbaric terrorist attack and the attacks against us by its proxies, and we will continue to hold it accountable. The President and the Secretary of State have been unequivocal about our support for Israel 
and Israel's right to defend itself against terrorism. And the Biden administration has also been consistent in our efforts to counter Iran's long-standing support for Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis, and militia groups in Iraq and Syria. Our bolstered presence in the region has sent a clear message that this is not a time to take advantage of the situation. And President Biden has shown he is prepared to defend U.S. personnel and interests time and time again. While our priority right now remains uh, supporting Israel, countering Iran's support for terrorism in the region, and addressing the humanitarian situation in Gaza, we also continue to counter the full range of the Iranian regime's activities that are antithetical to our interests and our values. We are confronting the Iranian regime's lethal plotting against current and former U.S. officials, as well as the transnational repression of dissidents, journalists, and human rights defenders, including on U.S. soil. We are using all of the tools at our disposal to expose and disrupt Iran's expanding military partnership with Russia, alongside our, partner, our allies and partners. We are standing with the people of Iran in the face of continued oppression and violence. And on the nuclear front, President Biden is absolutely committed to never allowing Iran to acquire a nuclear weapon, and has been clear that we remain postured and prepared to use all appropriate measures to do so. Iran's unjust detention of our citizens for political leverage also represents a threat, and that is why we continue to stress to all Americans, do not go to Iran. President Biden and Secretary Blinken have been clear there is no higher priority than the safety and security of Americans, and the administration stands by our deal that brought five innocent Americans and two of their family members home. This deal was about reuniting these Americans with their loved ones. As part of this arrangement, we facilitated the transfer of $6 billion in restricted Iranian funds held in South Korea to restricted accounts in Qatar for humanitarian use only. Not a penny of this money has been spent, and these funds will not go anywhere anytime soon. This does not change anything about our approach to Iran. Iran remains an adversary, and we will continue to confront it as such. With respect to Qatar, its relationship with Hamas has been well known to multiple Israeli governments, including the current government, going back many years. It has been and remains extremely helpful in securing hostage releases. At the same time, we have discussed with Qatari leaders that there is no going back to the status quo of October 6, and they have expressed their agreement with that. With respect to the waiver Secretary Blinken signed on November 14, the 21st such waiver across multiple administrations for Iraq to pay for electricity imports uh, and in support of Iraq's energy independence, under these waivers, no money has been or will be permitted to enter Iran, and any notion to the contrary is false. These Iranian funds can only be used for the purchase of food, agricultural commodities, medicine, medical devices, and other non-sanctionable transactions. We do not believe that restricting the availability of humanitarian goods to the Iranian people would decrease Iran's support for terrorism. Iran has proven it prioritizes destabilizing activities and terrorism regardless of the country's macroeconomic conditions. And since we do not expect any change in Iran's behavior from these steps, our approach to Iran is similarly not going to change. And so I close by reaffirming the administration's commitment to addressing Iran's continued destabilizing behavior unilaterally and with our partners. Thank you. Thank you uh, for that. And uh, before I get into my questions, I, I want to emphasize as well um, the U.S. citizens that still go to Iran is stunning to me. Uh, <clears throat> recently, I had the 
Swiss ambassador to Iran in my office. Uh, she and the Swiss act as our on-the-ground liaison since we do not have diplomatic relations. Um, they, know, uh, they know of tens of thousands of our uh, citizens uh, who are there, and, uh, and they suspect that it may be more. So if anything, if we want to talk about bipartisan agreement, please do not go to Iran. Uh, and so we, we, the government, and we as citizens aren't ever put in that, that situation. So I wanted to emphasize that's a, that is a public service announcement uh, from, the, uh, from the Oversight Committee. Well, that's okay with the ranking member. So. We're watching a House Financial Services Committee hearing on how the Iranian regime gets and uses money to fund terrorism. It's the second of a series of hearings on the topic. Today's hearing will focus on getting answers from Biden administration officials. Let's watch. I'm going to start with my questions uh, with uh, Assistant Secretary Rosenberg. Um, what is the Biden administration's policy reason for allowing the transfer of money from Iraqi banks? Uh, to Iraqi dinar, in Iraqi dinar, uh, to France, Germany, Italy, and Oman, the last two waivers that covered those, and, uh, and to be then converted from dinar to euros. Uh, basically, what I'm wanting to know is the why, and then secondarily, who requested this move? So, Secretary. Thank you very much for the question. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to speak to this. Um, uh, as a point of clarification, the money was earned in euros, uh, so it never changed. Uh, there was never a FX transaction. It was earned in euros. And um, What do you mean by earned in euros? I mean, it was, this was electricity that was sent from Iran to Iraq. The Iraqis, the Iraqis paid for it in euros? That's correct. So it was never in Iraqi dinar? That's correct. Okay, and it's my understanding, though, that the law says that it is meant and intended to be in the local denomination. I will uh, defer to my um, uh, colleague from the State Department to, uh, to discuss the waivers that uh, uh, were put in place originally by the last administration that allow for um, Iraq to purchase uh, uh, energy uh, from Iran. So they haven't been converted to euros because they were in euros, is your testimony? Yes. Okay. Why yeah. is that necessary? Uh, it's an, uh, necessary. It's a, uh, the Iraqis have the opportunity to pay for that in either dinar or euros, and they okay. pay for it in euros. All right. Um, as we've discussed, Oman is one of the countries. So the, the money that's, whether it's in Italy, France, or was in Germany, or is in Oman, is in, in euros, is your understanding? It's in euros. Okay. Um, why is Oman one of the countries granted a waiver to receive Iranian front funds from Iraq? Why Oman? Uh, we have worked with the financial institutions in Oman for, uh, to create the uh, structure for restrictions on these finances. Do you, do you have greater confidence in the Omani banking system than you do in the Qatari banking system or the Italian banking system or the French banking system? We, speaking specifically to the funds in question, I, I think that we're here today to discuss, so funds in, uh, in Qatar and funds in Oman, we've worked very carefully with- But, but, the, but the waiver says Italy and France, France twice, the last two waivers, and Germany, 
I'm curious why Germany is no longer in that waiver, and maybe Mr. Paley is going to have to answer that, but I want to continue with you. I'd happily defer, since these are State Department waivers, so I'd happily defer to my colleague to speak to the text of the waiver. Okay. But with respect to the, um, the confidence that we have in the financial institutions in Qatar and in Oman that uh, hold this money, we've worked on creating a structure for the restriction of these funds and a whole series of levels of compliance in order to examine uh, the, the money yeah. and any potential it, request for And we had testimony previously that there's no written agreement on that. Uh, there is no letter, but there, or there is a letter, but not a written agreement. Uh, but have there been any humanitarian transactions facilitated from the Iranian funds held in Oman? There have been two transactions. Two transactions, okay. I know Mr. Paley had said there had been none out of Qatar, but uh, there have been out of, uh, out of Oman. Have there been any issues or problems identified in the transactions facilitated from the Iranian funds held in Oman? Uh, I'm familiar with the request from the chair uh, uh, regarding uh, some matters related to the financial institutions. We have prepared a response uh, to that, and uh, that will be forthcoming, I believe, today. It would be inappropriate for me to speak in an open setting here about the financial institutions in detail, although we'd be happy to, in a closed setting, speak more about that particular matter. So this, this is yes or no. It's, I mean, it's, you're, not, you're not giving us any information. Have, have there been problems or issues with those, with those transfers? The transactions themselves, yes. we have confidence in the series of um, restrictions that we have in place and the due diligence okay. around Mrs. <laughs> Ms. Rosenberg, you're sliding into bureaucrat speak now. I mean, you're, 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 you're going soft around the edges on this. It's a simple question. Now, your answer can be what I, what I interpret is, I can't answer it in this open setting, uh, but have there been problems? Uh, I appreciate the question, and we would be happy to, in a closed setting, speak to you more about the particular transactions. So we will take that as a yes. And uh, all right, so I, my time has expired. I will, uh, with that, I'm going to recognize the, uh, at the request of the ranking member of the subcommittee, the full uh, committee ranking member, the gentlewoman from California. For Thank you very minutes. much, um, Mr. Powley and Ms. Rosenberg. The United States had a long-standing bipartisan policy to explicitly exclude certain humanitarian activities from sanctions restrictions. Specifically, humanitarian acceptance allowed for trade in agricultural commodities, medicine, and medical devices. Such exceptions are reflected in legislation and executive orders that form the United States sanctions programs including those related to Iran. These humanitarian exceptions reflect basic respect for all human life, and they are also important to our broader national security interests. Right now, there's a very serious humanitarian crisis occurring in Gaza, and although the Biden administration was able to successfully negotiate a temporary ceasefire to allow for more humanitarian assistance. Much more is needed. Mr. Powell, Ms. Rosenberg, can you discuss the importance of humanitarian exceptions in the context of what is happening in Gaza and U.S. strategic interests in the broader region? What would an elimination of humanitarian exceptions to sanctions and what that would mean for the innocent uh, civilians in Gaza? Thank you very much for the question. 
Um, it is uh, correct that the uh, ability to, uh, the exceptions that exist to pay for uh, agricultural commodities, medicine, and medical devices are uh, a matter of longstanding policy. They are enshrined in uh, congressional statute over years, over many programs, over successive Congresses. They are enshrined in executive authority as well, over, an, over a variety of administrations. Uh, and as you say, it reflects uh, respect for human life. It respects core values uh, of Congress, of the administration, about providing for meeting basic human needs. These uh, exceptions that exist, the ability to pay for uh, humanitarian goods, apply across an array of sanctions programs. And so to the extent that uh, there's a, where there is a need, so for example, you were noting in Gaza, our uh, exceptions exist there as well, which is to say that sanctions should not be, and we will work so that they cannot be here, restrictions on the provision of humanitarian assistance there as elsewhere. One note I would add, given that we're here to discuss uh, uh, Iran and its support for terror, including through proxy groups in the region, and our concern about the potential for diversion of humanitarian aid, it creates the necessity for us to work diligently to ensure that humanitarian aid is in a number of circumstances restricted and we have great clarity on the fact that it shall be used for humanitarian aid and not diverted. Thank you, Mr. Palin. Thank you very much. Uh, I would reiterate what Assistant Secretary Rosenberg uh, said in terms of this administration's commitment uh, of support uh, on uh, humanitarian issues, uh, which echoes uh, support across multiple administrations uh, for addressing humanitarian issues and also uh, having these humanitarian carve-outs uh, in our legislation that allow for uh, with the proper due diligence, humanitarian transaction to go to people uh, uh, across the world, including in, in areas uh, where we have very strong disagreements about their policy approaches. Uh, since October 7th, uh, President Biden and Secretary Blinken have emphasized their support uh, for Israel and Israel's right to defend themselves, uh, including against Iranian-backed terrorism. At the same time, President Biden and Secretary Blinken have also emphasized their focus on humanitarian support to Gaza. Thank you. Um, my colleagues on the other side of the aisle have alleged that President Biden has weakened Iran's sanctions. But my understanding is that President Biden has only increased sanctions since the Trump administration. In fact, the two transactions waivers that are the focus of this hearing are actually carried over from the Trump administration. Can you please confirm that they, these are the same uh, sanctions waivers from the Trump administration that have been continued by the Biden administration? Is that true? Thank you very much. Uh, yes, in terms of the uh, waiver uh, with regards uh, to Iraq and Iraq's purchases of uh, uh, electricity from Iran, uh, this is the 21st uh, time that this waiver has been issued, the 20th renewal uh, across administrations. Uh, so uh, this administration has been very clear about our support for Iraq, and that's what this waiver is about. I'm happy to get into more detail. Uh, and as Ms. Rosenberg said, uh, our time has uh, support expired. for, excuse me. I'll let you finish the, the, the sentence, but the gentlelady's time has expired. Okay, thank you very much. Thank okay. you very okay. much. All right. Go back. Uh, 
Uh, with that, the gentleman from Texas, uh, Mr. Sessions, is recognized for five minutes. Mr. Chairman, thank you very much. Uh, what's happening today is, is that this subcommittee under the leadership of our young chairman is trying to ask questions because as you know, as required by law, there's a report that was issued to Congress. There was only one sentence in the report regarding the payment transfer of authority in the most recent November Iraqi electric waiver. So I've got a copy of your uh, statement here and the statement says the secretary also certifies that France, Italy, and Oman faced exceptional circumstances, exceptional circumstances preventing them from significantly reducing their petroleum products purchases from Iran. Well, look, I get it with France, but Italy has reserves of 1.3% of what, what it already uses. And this concludes our coverage of the House Financial Services Committee's hearing on the Iranian regime and how it funds terrorism. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. Israel vows to continue fighting amid a rare criticism from President Biden. See what their new tactic is. The president's son is defending his father in public. That's after GOP investigators subpoenaed him for a closed-door deposition. What did he say about his own indictment and President Biden's impeachment inquiry? Six colleges across the country under federal investigation. See what the Education Department is accusing them of. This year's military spending bill deals with controversial social issues like the Pentagon paying service members abortion travel expenses. We bring you the bill's status in Congress. One in five mail-in voters admit to some form of voter fraud in 2020. That's according to a new poll on the issue. We bring you former President Trump's reaction. The president of the Pennsylvania Patriot Coalition weighs in on election integrity. What he has to say on Chinese regime infiltration in the U.S. and government, media, and corporations. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. The president's son is defying a con congressional subpoena today. The House Oversight and Judiciary Committees want a closed-door deposition with him. Hunter Biden spoke about the situation this morning. He admitted that he is responsible for his mistakes, but defended his father. I'm here today to acknowledge that I've made mistakes in my life and wasted opportunities and privileges I was afforded. For that, I'm responsible. For that, I'm accountable, and for that, I'm making amends. For six years, I have been the target of the unrelenting Trump attack machine shouting, where's Hunter? Well, here's my answer. I am here. Let me state as clearly as I can, my father was not financially involved in my business, not as a practicing lawyer, 
not as a board member of Burisma, not in my partnership with a Chinese private businessman, not in my investments at home nor abroad, and certainly not as an artist. House Republicans have subpoenaed Hunter Biden as part of an investigation into whether President Biden committed impeachable offense in his family's dealings. Hunter Biden says he's willing to testify publicly in the investigation into his father, but not willing to sit for a closed-door deposition. GOP leaders previously said they would hold Hunter in contempt of Congress if he ignores their subpoena. Hunter Biden's lawyers wanted any testimony to be public over concerns that comments might be taken out of context. Republicans say filming the deposition and releasing the transcript would prevent that. Here are House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan and Oversight Chairman James Comer reacting to Hunter Biden's refusal. We're disappointed that he didn't show up. I mean, he was just across the way at the Capitol. You think he could have come here and sat for questions. If you do it in an open format now, you're going to get you're going to get filibusters, you're going to get speeches, you're going to get all kinds of things. Uh, what we want is the facts, and the way you get the facts in every single uh, every single investigation I've been involved in is you bring people in for an interview behind closed doors where you can get those facts. And then, as the chairman said, we'd love for him to come public. This is an investigation about public corruption at the highest levels. We have accumulated mountains of evidence that's concerning to an overwhelming majority of Americans. We have specific questions in there, and I think we're going to allow you in there to see the uh, piles and piles of documents, of bank statements, of emails, of text messages that we've worked very hard on in this committee over the last eight or nine months. And turning to the latest updates on the war in Gaza, Israel says the war will continue with or without international support. That after a rare criticism from President Biden. Israel said at least nine troops were killed yesterday when Hamas ambushed them in Gaza City. Israel began pumping seawater into Hamas underground tunnels in an effort to clear the terrorists out. The Biden administration announced the fourth round of sanctions against Hamas leaders. This targets eight senior officials and those who helped their operations. The United Nations on Tuesday voted overwhelmingly to call for a ceasefire in the war. The U.S. voted against it, but in a rare move, Biden said Israel is losing support for bombing Gaza. A U.S. warship in the region shot down another drone by the Houthis over the Red Sea. Next week, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin will be visiting the Middle East, including Bahrain, Qatar and Israel. Will university presidents be condemned for their congressional testimony on anti-Semitism? The House will be voting on a resolution today addressing the issue. Code of conduct or Congresswoman Elise Stefanik introduced this bipartisan resolution. She's one of the lawmakers who questioned three university presidents on anti-Semitism during a hearing last week. She asked whether calling for the genocide of Jews violates the school's code of conduct. The UPenn president and the Harvard president said it depends on the context. The hearing has since gone viral and the presidents faced intense backlash for their response. Stefanik's resolution would condemn the college president's testimony as well as anti-Semitism on college campuses. She said this is not a partisan issue but a question of moral clarity. And the Education Department is also taking action. The department's Office for Civil Rights said they will investigate six colleges for alleged discrimination, including anti-Semitic and Islamophobic discrimination. The schools are Stanford University, ACLU, UC San Diego, Rutgers University, the University of Washington, and Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington.
It's unclear what incidents led to the investigation, but the schools allegedly violated Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. It prohibits discrimination based on race, ethnicity, or national origin. Police in Michigan are now seeking charges in the October killing of Detroit Synagogue President Samantha Wohl. Prosecutors did not reveal who they planned to charge, but it comes two days after a person of interest was taken into custody. On October 21st, Wohl was found outside her home, dead with multiple stabbing injuries. Investigators believe her death was motivated from a domestic dispute and not by anti-Semitism. Wohl was well known in the Jewish community and is being remembered for her kindness, generosity, and dedication to helping others. The FBI and Department of Homeland Security are warning of an increased threat to violence over the holidays as a result of the Israel-Hamas war. That's according to a public service announcement made yesterday. Authority, authorities say the war will likely increase the threat of violence, especially against large holiday gatherings or protests throughout winter. The warning comes as part of several announcements made by the two agencies since the start of the war, which asked the public to remain vigilant and report any threats of violence. And Congress is working to pass the annual National Defense Authorization Act before the end of the year. It includes critical points such as pay raises for service members, but it also deals with controversial social issues. The Biden administration on Tuesday said it strongly supports swift passage of the bill. However, not all lawmakers are in support. The NDAA is one of the few major pieces of legislation Congress passes every year. This year's bill does not include any provisions to end controversial policies, such as the military paying for service members to travel to other states to get an abortion. So some lawmakers tried to stop the bill from advancing. However, the Senate on Tuesday night voted 85 to 15 on a procedural measure, ending debate. This now advances the measure to a final vote. The Senate and House are both expected to approve it later this week. Coming up, pharmacy prescriptions rec records might not be so private. A congressional investigation finds sensitive information can be accessed without your knowledge. And your car may eventually not turn on if you're drunk. Congress wants to mandate new technology for automakers by next November if it's approved. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. A new poll shows one in five mail-in voters committed some kind of election fraud in 2020. This backs up former President Trump's years-old claim of widespread fraud. Trump is now calling on the Republican Party to take action. A new Heartland Rasmussen poll found that over 20% of mail-in voters admitted to filling out a ballot for somebody else. 10% said they know somebody who admitted to casting a mail-in ballot fraudulently. And 8% of likely voters said they were offered pay or reward for voting. Almost half of all 2020 voters were, votes were cast by mail, the most ever in U.S. history. Trump took to social media, writing, quote, This is the biggest story of the year, and Republicans must do something about it. Have to make a move now. 
The Supreme Court will take up a January 6th defendant's appeal. The case centers around the Department of Justice's charges of obstructing an official proceeding. The felony carries a prison sentence of up to 20 years. The DOJ has used law to prosecute hundreds of defendants for obstruction of Congress. Now the High Court has agreed to hear the petition of Joseph Wayne Fisher and three other defendants. The Pennsylvania Patriot Coalition says it's working to organize conservatives across the U.S. starting across the Keystone State. NTD visited a recent GOP unity meeting and had a chance to ask the coalition's president about his current focus. President of the Pennsylvania Patriot Coalition Sam Faddis is a retired CIA officer and senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy. He told NTD at a GOP meeting in Philadelphia the coalition's focus remains election integrity. Increasingly, as a coalition, we're focused on the idea that if the people in the legislature will not do what we need them to do, then we need to replace the people in the legislature. Uh, we're also pushing very hard what we can do at the county level, so the counties can get rid of drop boxes. Fattis is also a member of the Committee on the Present Danger China. He says his work involves watching for so-called elite capture inside the U.S. That's the buying of foreign officials to do Beijing's bidding. The American people were told a lie, 30 years ago at least. They said if we climb, they told us if we climb in bed with the Chinese, uh, with the Chinese Communist Party and we do business with them, they will become more liberal and democratic, they will become like us and there will, okay that's not what happened. They became stronger, more evil, more capable. Fattis says it's not an issue of ethnicity, but an issue between Americans and the Chinese Communist Party or CCP. He says the U.S. needs to stop paying the Chinese regime and strengthening its abilities to attack. If you think about it this way, let's imagine it was 1980-82 and Ronald Reagan's in the White House. Would anybody have done business with the Soviet Union? Would anybody say, let's put our factories in the Soviet Union? Let's increase the standard of living in the Soviet Union. Let's help the Soviets build bigger tanks, more tanks, better airplanes, aircraft carriers. No, in five seconds they would have said, you're out of your mind, you're insane. This is exactly what we're doing. I mean, to me, what the CCP figured out is, you know what the weakness of a capitalist system is? It's greed. Fattis says the problem runs throughout both parties in the U.S. government. He says corporations and media are making a lot of money and don't want that to change. Almost all of the television and radio stations are owned by a handful of corporations. You can tune into 12 different TV stations in several states. You're actually only hearing news from one corporation. And then those companies are owned by maybe five big corporations, maybe, at the most. All of those corporations also do business in China, right? Uh, and they don't want to lose the money from that. Now, think about how sick that is, because they're not only selling out their own country, but they're selling out the Chinese people, right? I mean, the guy making your, the guy making your iPhone or your iPad is making nothing. Standing on a factory floor 10 or 12 hours a day, and then going upstairs to sleep in a dormitory with six other guys, and he goes home once a year to see his family in the village. So the Chinese people don't get better, he's not getting richer, and the average American worker isn't getting richer, he probably lost his job. But at the top of the heap, you got some people that are making more money than anybody has ever seen.
and they don't want a change. I mean, look at the NBA. The national security expert maintains the number one victims are the ones waking up every day under control of a communist dictatorship and says the solution is to stop doing business with them. A congressional probe has revealed that pharmacy prescription records aren't so private. The investigation found that police have been able to access the information without a warrant. Senator Ron Wyden and Representatives Pramila Jayapal and Sarah Jacobs are sounding the alarm. The three Democrats voiced their concerns to the Department of Health and Human Services on Tuesday. The lawmakers want the department to revise its regulations under the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. The act protects the privacy of Americans' medical records. The lawmakers contacted the nation's eight largest pharmacy chains. They require legal, some require legal professionals to review law enforcement demands for pharmacy records. Others suggested they feel pressured to turn over the information. Joining us now is NTD business host Don Ma to discuss the world's first artificial intelligence powered political campaign caller. The AI campaign volunteer is called Ashley, and it's not your typical robocaller. What's so special about this, Ashley, Don? Well, Ashley is completely synthetic, yet none of her responses are pre-recorded. Uh, it's capable of having an uh, unlimited number of calls at the same time with customized uh, individual conversations. Um, and you probably have already guessed the secret behind this is uh, generative AI, not too different from that of ChatGPT, which uh, we're all familiar with. Um, so Ashley is a caller for Shemaine Daniels' campaign for Congress. And just over the weekend, Ashley uh, actually called thousands of Pennsylvania uh, voters on behalf of Daniels. So if you're on the receiving end of this phone call, what you can expect is something like this. You pick up the phone, Ashley introduces herself with, with her name and then tells you right off the bat that she is artificial intelligence and not a human. And it can actually analyze voter, voters' profiles and tailor the conversations around their key issues. And you know, the benefits of having an AI is that uh, they always show up to work. You know, that's a plus, of course. Uh, has a perfect recall of all of Daniel's positions. Uh, and if you feel annoyed with it, you can just hang up on it. It's not gonna feel bad if you do that. Uh, and it can speak over 20 languages. So imagine how conven convenient that would be uh, in terms of communicating with uh, different different type of voters. And I think probably one of the best things here uh, is that uh, it probably saves a lot of money for the campaign just using this uh, Ashley instead of a, a whole a group of callers potentially. And one voter actually said he enjoyed hearing from Ashley even though he could tell uh, from the beginning that it was not a human. Wow, incredible. So this sounds like a lot of positives potentially, but what are the limitations here? Right, of course. Uh, it seems like uh, AI could be ushering a new era for the political campaigning uh, landscape, but the developments are worrying for some uh, because the question here is, is this going to increase the amount of misinformation and as well as dis disinformation? Because for many people who have used uh, tools like ChatGPT, uh, they understand that sometimes uh, generative AI programs, they actually make up answers that are not true. And personally, I have experienced this as well. 
But you know, if you're just having fun asking questions, uh, it doesn't really matter. But the stakes are much higher in a political context. Uh, some of the answers, if it's incorrect or if it's misinformation, disinformation, that could actually be harmful to some. Uh, but you know, Daniels reassures that uh, uh, this uh, chat it's, a, it's sort of like a chatbot. It says its factual information um, is only repeated to viewers. Uh, but on the other hand, factual information is really at the judgment of the designers of chatbots. Uh, and we know that uh, AI chatbots uh, definitely have either a left-leaning or a right-leaning tendency. I mean, we've seen that with ChatGPT as well. And let me just give you an example here. So the news outlet Politico uh, did a test call, test call with Ashley, and uh, it asked about uh, Daniel's Republican opponent, Scott Perry. Uh, it, it asked uh, Ashley about uh, whether they have any concerns about uh, Perry, and the answer was that Daniels is concerned about Perry's involvement in the January 6th insurrection and is concerned about uh, Perry's attempts to help overturn the 2020 election. Um, but, you know, at least Ashley's voice is designed with a distinct metallic voice. So when you're calling, when you're on the receiving end of the call, you know exactly that this is a, an AI chatbot. Um, so, you know, there's definitely some cons here in addition to the pros. Wow, that's kind of mind blowing. What else is happening in the business world, Don? Sure. Um, Argentina has taken drastic measures to try to save its economy. The country's new economy minister says the government will weaken its peso currency by over half. This is part of a slew of measures to reduce Argentina's fiscal debt. Other efforts also include cutting energy subsidies and canceling bids for public works. The economy minister said the objective here is to simply avoid catastrophe and, they, and get the economy back on track. He added that the plan would be painful in the short term though, but it's necessary to cut the fiscal deficit and bring down actually triple digit inflation in the country. The country's latest inflation rate stands at nearly 150%. And Netflix is out with its most transparent data so far about its viewership. The streaming service pledged to increase transparency about how many hours certain programs are streamed as part of the Writer Guild of America contract ratified in October. And one of the top shows that Netflix viewers spend the most time watching is The Night Agent season one with more than 812 million hours. Ginny and Georgia season two and The Glory season one had more than 660 million hours each. Also Wednesday season one had uh, and as well as Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story had more than 500 million hours each. And finally, keep those shipping deadlines in mind. You don't want your gift to arrive after Christmas, so ensure gifts are under the tree in time. Be mindful of when your packages need to be shipped out. The United States Postal Service recommends that holiday mail be sent out by December 16th for it to arrive by Christmas. But if you're doing priority, you have four extra days to get those packages to the post office. Meanwhile, FedEx recommends a shipping date no later than December 15th for a five-day home delivery. And UPS recommends packages be shipped out on December 19th using three-day select if they are to be delivered by Saturday, December 23rd. All right. Thank you so much, Don. Thank you. 
Tesla is recalling nearly 2 million cars to limit the use of its autopilot feature. This comes after a review of nearly 1,000 crashes in which the feature was engaged. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration says the company agreed to an over-the-air software update as well as mailing letters to owners notifying them of the change. The update would limit the auto steer feature if a driver repeatedly fails to demonstrate they are ready to resume control of the car while the feature is on. In a recent Washington Post investigation, auto assist was used when it should not have been in at least eight serious accidents, including some fatalities. A senior member of the Federal Communications Commission is defending Elon Musk. He says the agency has engaged in the regulatory harassment of the SpaceX founder. Commissioner Brendan Carr made the claim after the FCC didn't award Starlink $885 million in subsidies. The network of satellites provides broadband internet access across the world. Carr accuses President Biden of unleashing federal agencies on Musk after he acquired Twitter. Biden has said publicly that Musk's relationships with other countries are, quote, worthy of being looked at. Starlink initially won the subsidies in 2020. The FCC said Tuesday that Starlink had, quote, failed to demonstrate that it could deliver the promised service. Musk said his company is the only one, quote, solving rural broadband at scale. And your car may eventually not turn on if you're drunk. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration testing technology to stop drunk driving. Congress wants a mandate on automakers by November next year if the technology is ready. One method would use breath or touch-based sensors to detect alcohol. Another system would employ cameras to monitor eye movement to determine intoxication. In 2021, more than 13,000 people died in alcohol-impaired car accidents. But the agency must be assured that the technology works before it can require it. There are close to a billion car trips in the U.S. every day, so if, a if the technology is 99.9% .9 accurate, that's one million people who can't start their car, even though they're not drunk. Once the tech is accurate enough, though, the, the agency will finalize the rules. Then automakers will have at least three years to adopt the systems. And parts of Colorado and New Mexico are under winter storm alerts through Friday. Starting today, the southern Rockies and southern plains are expecting heavy mountain snowfall and rain. Up to 24 inches of snow is possible in the region. This precipitation is welcomed in most of the area, which is facing drought conditions. Meanwhile, Texas could also see excessive rainfall. The Weather Prediction Center says up to 2.5 inches is possible in the central part of the state before the front moves east. The system is expected to merge with a storm forming in the Gulf and should impact much of the southeast this weekend. A new record in legal history. A 17-year-old passes the California bar exam. He's the youngest person to ever do so, according to the Tulare County District Attorney's Office. The state bar could not confirm that detail, but commended Peter Park's achievement. Park attended, started high school at 13 and simultaneously began a four-year law program. He passed the bar in his first attempt. He graduated from high school this year and became a law clerk in August. Park turned 18 in November and was sworn in as an attorney this week. A $44 million lottery prize has gone unclaimed in Florida. So where will this money go? 
The Florida Lottery Commission said the winning ticket expired at midnight on Monday after 180 days went by. The gas station that sold the ticket will still receive a percentage of the prize, but the unclaimed funds will be transferred to the Educational Enhancement Trust Fund. 20% will return to the prize pool. Coming up, the European Union may agree to start talks for Ukraine to join the bloc, but one country keeps saying it'll work against Ukraine joining the Union. And an employee of Germany's Foreign Intelligence Service on trial today accused of selling classified information to Russia. This as Germany warns of increased Russian spying. We'll have the details soon when we return. Ukraine has doubled down on its effort to erase all traces of Russian rule amid a full-scale invasion by Kremlin troops. More Soviet-era statues and monuments have been removed. Hundreds of streets have been renamed. Municipal workers dismantled a Soviet-era monument of a Red Army general from the Ukrainian capital. A Kiev city councillor said the statue will be moved to the Museum of Totalitarian Regime. Now, when Ukrainians are fighting the ideological successors of the Bolshevik regime, there's no place for these symbols and monuments in the capital of our country. The structure had occupied a prominent spot in a central artery named after Ukraine's national poet. Onlookers stopped to watch and photograph as the statue was lowered onto her lorry. Once I heard this happening, I put my coat on and ran here to see a historical moment of taking down one of the biggest executors of Ukrainians who brought here a red terror in the 1920s. One day, this will be on the pages of history books. It is our country. We need to educate our youth so that they know our history. They're doing the right thing to take him down. He might have believed in communism, but all of it was a utopia. Unfortunately, a lot of people died, and it is terrible. Ukraine have renamed thousands of streets and settlements in recent years. It's part of a decommunization campaign launched after the 2014 Maidan Revolution, which toppled a pro-Russian leader. Also in Kiev, demonstrators took to the streets on Sunday calling for the release of soldiers taken prisoner by Russia in the fallen city of Mariupol. A mother of a soldier said her son was evacuated from Avostal steelworks into Russian captivity by order. We've been told that they would be released in three to four months. It's been a year and a half since then. Nothing is clear yet. Where they are, how they are. The Ukrainian government said prisoner exchanges with Russia have slowed in the past few months. It said several thousand people had returned home, but another several thousand are still in captivity. Putin has announced his intention to run for Russian president again. He's been in power for nearly a quarter of a century. What do you think, what do Russians think about six more years of him as president? Russian President Vladimir Putin has announced his candidacy in the presidential election next March, moving to prolong his unyielding grip on Russia for at least another six years. Most of St. Petersburg's residents reacted positively to the decision of their fellow native. This is a right decision, a very good one. I was very happy when I saw it. I think that, after all, a strong man should rule in Russia. We are happy. We were waiting for him to finally say that he would run for president. And it happened. We support him. Yes. Putin still commands wide support after nearly a quarter of a century in power. Despite starting an immensely costly conflict in Ukraine, 
which took thousands of his countrymen's lives. What do Russians expect from Putin's possible new presidential term? I expect from the new term of our president that we will have stability. There will be economic growth, rising wages. Victory will finally come in Ukraine. We will get our new territories and will prosper. 71-year-old Putin has twice used his leverage to amend the constitution so he could theoretically stay in power until he's in his mid-80s. Whether due to real or coerced support, he's expected to face only a token opposition in the ballot. There are no more candidates to vote for. There is no such person in Russia for whom one could vote and say, yes, this is our future president. Unfortunately, there is no one, only him. Putin is already the longest-serving Kremlin leader since Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin. He was first elected president in the year 2000. An independent pollster showed about 80% of the populace approves of his performance. That support might come from the heart, or it might reflect submission to a leader who cracks down on any opposition, even relatively mild criticism. And now more top stories from the UK, Germany and other European countries. The US is imposing sanctions on hundreds of people and entities, including in China, Turkey and the United Arab Emirates. This is Washington's latest attempt to crack down on Russia's sanctions evasions. In total, the U.S. issued more than 250 sanctions on Tuesday. For example, a network of four entities and nine people based in China, Russia, Hong Kong and Pakistan. That's for providing Chinese manufactured weapons and technologies to Russia. The U.S. says the network aims to circumvent sanctions and Chinese controls on the export of military-related materials. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky arrived in Norway today. He'll talk with the Prime Minister of Norway and other Nordic leaders during the surprise visit. Zelensky is asking for more support in Ukraine's war with Russia. Norway said it'll donate over $270 million to Ukraine. Zelensky also commented on a European Union summit set to take place in Brussels on Thursday and Friday. He says the summit won't be easy, but insisted that Ukraine has fulfilled all demands necessary for joining the EU. Hungary keeps opposing Ukraine's bid to join the European Union. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban previously threatened to veto proposals allowing Ukraine to start membership talks and to receive substantial financial and military aid from the EU budget. Here's what Orban said today while addressing his parliament. The government's stance at present is that Ukraine's fast admission to the European Union would have unpredictable consequences. Ukraine's fast lane ascension does not serve the interests of either Hungary or the European Union. The European Union as a whole, meanwhile, wants to keep supporting Ukraine. The bloc's chief executive today called for the EU to stand behind Kyiv for as long as it takes. Putin's failure will not automatically translate into Ukraine's victory. As the war drags on, we must prove what it means to support Ukraine for as long as it takes. Ukraine's biggest mobile network operator was hit on Tuesday. It appears to be the largest cyber attack of the war with Russia so far. It knocked out mobile and internet services for millions. Kyiv Star has over 24 million mobile subscribers. That's more than half of Ukraine's population. Some Ukrainians rushed to buy SIM cards from a different provider this week to get connection back on their phone. The CEO of Kyiv Star says the company's IT infrastructure was partially destroyed.
An employee of Germany's Foreign Intelligence Service is accused of selling classified information to Russia. His trial starts in Berlin today. The court will work under heightened security measures. The trial is expected to go on until July 2024. If found guilty, the accused could serve between 5 and 15 years in prison. German authorities previously warned of likely heightened Russian spying. That's due to the Kremlin's standoff with the West over its invasion of Ukraine. Poland officially has a new government. Poland's president swore in the administration of new Polish Prime Minister Donald Tusk today. This marks a huge change after eight years of conservative rule. Tusk is expected to be more in favor of working closely with the European Union than his predecessor. He's also set to support Ukraine's bid to eventually join the bloc. Powerful street drugs, 10 times stronger than fentanyl, have been linked to the deaths of at least 54 people in the UK in the last six months. Authorities believe the drugs are being shipped to Britain from Chinese labs. The synthetic opioids are called nitazines. They're first made, they first made the news in the UK in 2021. Officials believe they are mixed into drugs like heroin to strengthen them. But a lethal dose of nitazine could be a, as small as a single grain of salt. They were first developed in the 1950s as a painkiller, but they were declared unsafe for human consumption and have never been licensed for use. The government is set to classify 15 synthetic opioids as Class A drugs in the UK. It's now illegal to park on the sidewalk in Scotland. So is double parking alongside another car that's parallel parked and parking at dropped curbs. Under the new law, all of these punishable by a hundred pound fine. That's roughly $125. It will be slashed in half if paid within 14 days. Drivers often park partially on the sidewalk on narrow streets, but lawmakers in Scotland say the new rule will help keep pedestrians safe. It will be up to local councils to enforce the new rule. According to local media reports, most Scottish councils don't have immediate plans to enforce the ban. Edinburgh is likely to become the first Scottish city to implement the new rules, with fines coming into force in January. And staying in the UK, a tea room hanging over the edge of a cliff. Take a look at what a recent landslide did to houses on this British island. The Isle of Wight in southern England is familiar with landslides, but this one was too close for comfort. Over the weekend, residents were evacuated from their homes after chunks of the cliff fell away. A landslide has reshaped this landscape. It's believed to be the biggest scene here for more than a century. Experts say heavy rainfall in October could be part of the cause. Cars have been left stranded and gardens are now inches from the edge. Authorities told those living nearby that they can't return home until the land is assessed. Not many police forces around the world get to drive a top-of-the-range Lamborghini. But that's exactly what the Italian state police are getting. Italian car maker Lamborghini has donated this Urus Performante SUV to the Italian state police. It'll join a fleet of existing supercars used for emergency medical services. Officers in Rome will use this car for the urgent medical transportation of organs and plasma. The car has a top speed of 190 miles per hour. It's been outfitted with specific equipment for organ transport, and it's particularly suited for hospitals in difficult-to-reach areas. Collaboration between the car maker and Italian police began in 2004. This one is the sixth Lamborghini to join the police fleet.
now we have Karis Rea, a fellow at the Jewish Leadership Project, to speak with us about college leadership stances on anti-Semitism in light of rising tensions on campuses. Just this week, Harvard said their president, Claudine Gay, will remain leader of the prestigious Ivy League school following her controversial comments last week at a congressional hearing on anti-Semitism, where she said calling for the genocide of Jews and the elimination of Israel may violate Harvard's codes of conduct depending on the context. Listen in. Carries, how do you view Harvard University's approach regarding free speech versus addressing anti-Semitism in light of these recent events? Thank you so much for having me. It's a great question. And I view this as a case of double standards and inconsistency. We have seen time and again, example after example of Harvard not abiding by you know, values of freedom of expression and free speech. We've seen students and presidents get, uh, excuse me, professors and academics get reprimanded and even suspended and fired for using the wrong pronouns or engaging in microaggressions. Look at somebody like Roland Fryer, a professor who had put out a extremely valuable scholarship that was heralded across the board throughout, uh, you know, on each side of the political spectrum. And then he puts out inconvenient facts about uh, policing, police brutality, and statistics about uh, use of force against the black community, and he is gone. Mm -hmm. So this just shows that there are certain identities that don't deserve um, protection, according to Claudine Gay, while others do. And that's really the problem here is the inconsistency. And a lot of conservatives have been saying that the reason that anti-Semitism has been able to thrive unpunished on these university campuses, as we've seen in these instances that you've pointed out, is because of intersectionality and the coalition of the oppressed. Could you explain that for us? Absolutely. That is right. What you have here uh, on the woke left is the hierarchy of oppression where certain groups are privileged over other groups and Jewish students are seen as white and because whiteness is at the top of the hierarchy of oppression, Jews are now enveloped into that category of being privileged and the oppressors of other minorities. Now, this is outrageous when you think about the fact that historically, as we saw in World War II, Jews were persecuted and, and one out of every three Jews on earth slaughtered for the very fact that we were considered not white or not Aryan, according to Nazi Germany, right? And now we are uh, being singled out and uh, you know not protected on college campuses for the very reason that we are considered white. And, and this is not abstract, you, you hear uh, left-wing groups and anti-Zionist groups across the, the board mm. uh, call, you know, Jews white and privileged. And, and this is just an, an absolute, um, you know, this is just a travesty when you look at the fact that, that Jews are victims of more hate crimes per capita than any other group in America. We are twice as likely to be targeted in a hate crime than a black person. And, and yet we are considered the oppressors. Yeah, I want to look now at comments by conservative commentator Ben Shapiro, who said that Harvard leadership would rather face this criticism and potentially lose millions of dollars in donor funding 
rather than relinquish upholding DEI and intersectionality? Why would that be the case? That's a great question. I think, well, according to, to Bill Ackman, they've actually lost over a over billion dollars in, in donations. You know, uh, while there is a corporate element to, to all of these college campuses, they're not exactly like a corporation which just cares about the bottom line and, and you know, will kind of go wherever the cultural winds takes them. You know, these are institutions that have deeply, deeply embedded ideologies. And, and this DEI infrastructure, it, is, is so fundamental, I think, and, and, and has become so much a part of, of the entire institution that to dismantle it would really mean a, an entire overhaul of the system. And I, you know, I mean, we all would like to see that, but I, don't, I just don't think that's in the cards for, for Harvard, unfortunately. And, and Ben Shapiro pointed out that with somebody like Liz McGill at UPenn, who was fired, you know, she was a white woman and, uh, you know, she could be sacrificed at the altar, you know. But, um, but it's clear now, as we're seeing from the plagiarism scandal with Claudine Gay and, and more that's coming out about that by the hour, it's, it's just become a massive scandal. We see that, that it looks more and more like this was, that she was a DEI hire um, based on, you know, hired based on her identity because she absolutely did not meet the academic qualifications to be president. Karis Ria, that's all we have time for. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. A couple from Texas is combining their love for the holidays with their love for the particular convenience store chain. It's called Bucky's. And for those of you not familiar, it's a joyous roadside stop. Some have described as a quick trip meets Hobby Lobby. The national chain holds a special place in the hearts of many motorists and has developed something of a nostalgic cult following. One Texas couple is so fond of Bucky's that they've fashioned their holiday gingerbread construction to pay tribute. The folks at the Williamson County government were so impressed with the creation that they featured it on their Twitter feed and are showcasing it at the tax office. Do you want to quit coffee but are scared of the withdrawal? We have a solution. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Many people want to quit coffee for any number of reasons. It could be due to bladder irritation, the jitters, or a belief that it might be putting their health at risk. Whatever your reason is, there could be one thing holding you back, the fear of caffeine withdrawal. And I don't blame you. Withdrawal is uncomfortable and challenging. Symptoms range from headaches to irritability to fatigue and bad moods. It can make cutting back on coffee tough for some and unsustainable. But new research from Australia suggests an effective tool to help. Decaf. The University of Sydney School of Addiction Medicine found that people experienced fewer withdrawal symptoms when they drank decaf. The study involved 61 people who said they consumed three or more cups of coffee every day. Each went caffeine-free for 24 hours and withdrawal symptoms were measured. Participants were then separated into three groups. One was given decaf unknowingly, one was given decaf and was told about it, and the third was given water. 45 minutes after consumption, withdrawal symptoms were measured again. The group that unknowingly drank decaf reported the biggest drop in withdrawal symptoms. This was even though there was no pharmacological reason it should have that effect. It was simply the belief that they were drinking real coffee. Surprisingly, there was a big drop in symptoms in the people who knew they were drinking decaf as well. The water group didn't report a reduction in symptoms. Perhaps the smell, taste and ritual of drinking the decaf coffee was enough to quell caffeine withdrawal symptoms. 
A cup of decaf may help a person ride out the worst withdrawal symptoms as they work toward becoming caffeine free. To get the biggest benefits, avoid loading up your decaf with sugars and syrupy creams, which can prevent various health risks. Check this out. NASA released a new image of the youngest supernova remnant in our galaxy. It's called Cassiopeia A or Cass A. It was taken by the James Webb Space Telescope. This is the closest and most detailed look inside the exploded star. Astronomers used Webb's near-infrared camera to see the supernova remnant at different light wavelengths than those used in previous observations. The image could help researchers better understand the causes behind these massive explosions. Cass A seems to shine like a Christmas ornament, and it's included in the first-ever digital White House advent calendar. Wow. Well, that's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. We'll be back with more stories tomorrow.